Good morning, everybody. I'd like to ask you to look with me at a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. This, I think, is familiar to most of us. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10 and reading through verse 18. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm." Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now we'll end our reading there, though it is in the middle of a sentence. This passage as I said, I think is familiar. You've probably heard sermons before preached on it. I hope I won't be too um, repetitive and what? Redundant, which is kind of the same thing as repetitive. Anyway, there are three things here in this passage, and I think, like much of Scripture, it always applies everywhere but sometimes more than others sometimes it is particularly needed or it just fits our time what we may be facing and dealing with i think while again this passage is always relevant there seem uh, there seems to be even in history times when we're in a, a more fierce struggle. So I want to look at three things here. Verse 12 is the first verse I want to look at. Then we'll go back to verse 11, and then we'll go further down in the passage. <clears throat> verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, now, the original language here speaks as if it is totally common 
never avoidable, always with us. Wish you could get away from it, but you can't. It's our struggle. The or other versions speak of our wrestling. And this wrestling, the whole sense of it is it is present, it is ongoing, it is unfailing, it typifies the Christian walk, it is never over until we leave this world or Jesus returns. It's not meant to discourage us and make us think, man, alive, we'll never get out. Well, in one degree, yes, we never will get out of it. The devil really laid plans for us when we were born, and he will be snapping at our heels when they carry us to the funeral home. We just have to face it. The Christian warfare. I won't get into, you know, the way things were in the good old days, but I'm put to shame when I look through some of my antique books that I have in my library. Um, <clears throat> I have a Methodist hymnal printed in the 1840s. And if you go through and read those hymns, especially, now this is exciting. Look in the table of contents, okay? And in the table of contents, they have categories, lots of them. The death of Christ, the birth of Christ, redemption through Christ, um, the Holy Spirit, the new birth. You know, there's all kinds of sections of hymns that speak to that particular subject. One of the biggest, the Christian warfare. It is filled with, I don't know, 100 hymns written about the warfare that we are involved with constantly. This is present tense here means it's not going to quit it's part of what we signed up for when we got right with god god inducted us into his army but we also face a foe that doesn't play fair and we'll look at that in a moment but we're unavoidably involved in a deadly struggle by deadly, I mean it's literally life and death. Those are the only two outcomes of this warfare. We either live in eternity or we die the second death and go out into an unrelenting hell. These are the stakes. Then this is not just a little contest, kind of a little arm wrestling deal. This is for our very lives. This struggle. And 
A.W. Tozer, who had a sharp tongue, and a lot of people, he would say, he, he died in the 1960s, he would say that I have preached my way off of most platforms, meaning wherever I was invited for some Bible conference, some large uh, gathering or whatever, his message was, would irritate enough people that he didn't get invited back. I had a woman in my previous church um, who was um, way up in years, I think she was in her 90s, who heard him numerous times um, because she was uh, near where he did a lot of preaching and pastoring. But anyway, and she, she confirmed that he could... You know what he said? He said... The truth is we're in a battlefield. But the church has tried to paint it as a playground. We're on a battleground, but we look at it as if we're in a playground. Much of the preaching, the teaching, the video series, the music, everything is ditties <laughs> it's twit them um, it's drivel it's superficial it is um, the whole thing is let's be chipper I'm all for being happy occasionally but we have to face it we have a foe who is out kill us and damn us for all eternity. He's not playing whether we are or not. He likes it when the church plays because then is when he's able to do the most good for his aim. We are in a deadly struggle. It ebbs and flows all battles do. There are seasons when it seems to be um, especially fierce. There are those times when it seems there's a lull. We enjoy those. We're grateful for them. God knows when to allow us to have those, to regather some strength um, and have some R&R. But we are, we're in a battle and the more the enemy can convince us that we're not or get us to misidentify the enemy the happier he is and the more successful he'll be finishing verse 12 <clears throat> our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness or this dark world, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, heavenly places doesn't mean heaven. It just means the supernatural. 
to sum it up, we're facing a supernatural warfare and a supernatural enemy. We are up against demonic schemes. I think one of the things that the devil has uh, successfully done is to have enough people, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm just, you know, 24-hour-a-day grouch, but so much of the world has actually done enough work for the devil that re regular, if I want to say that, normal Christians tend to downplay, well, the devil. Why? Because there are whole groups of Christians, and you can find them on TV, you can find them in the bookstores. There's a devil under every single bush. Okay? And, I mean, when you get a hangnail, it's the hangnail demon. And we've got to cast it out. And we've got to bind Satan. And we've got to do all this nonsense that has the devil on his back laughing. You realize that? Listen, when we bind Satan, which is utter nonsense, God's the only one that can bind him. That's why Jude said, even Michael the archangel didn't say to Satan, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Jesus rebuke you. Now, we're not to fear the enemy in a cowering way as long as we hide behind Jesus and as this first verse says, be strong in the power of His might. Not ours. Not ours. In the Old Testament, Psalm 16, David said, I do always put the Lord ahead of me. In other words, He's my shield. I fight behind Him. I fight by His command and by His strength, but really, He's the one that cuts through the enemy's lines and gives me victory. Without it, I'm overwhelmed in, in an instant. God is the one who enables us to even stand in the fight. There's enough, then, of nonsense about um, the devil and demons and you know you know you know enough I guess I don't need to keep going on it but it bugs me because it's false and the, the result is people don't take the devil seriously as a serious foe who is he is more powerful He's more powerful than every single being in the universe except for God. So the idea, I heard a guy 
years ago in one of the churches I was in. I just wish the devil was in front of me. I'd just punch him in the nose. Well, to quote, uh, a, to quote a theological giant, Bugs Bunny. What a maroon. N- listen, none of us can do that to the enemy. He is a fearsome foe, except for God. Except for God. So I am in a deadly struggle against demonic schemes. Now, verse 11, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against, and really what he's describing here, is a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy in the beings of heaven. There's Gabriel we know of, we hear of the archangel Michael, who apparently has the the hosts, the armies of heaven, at his command. Just as God has a hierarchy, so does Satan. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, written from, as from a junior demon being trained on how to attack and fool Christians. It's a tremendous book. It's fiction, but it's not. Read it sometime. Demonic schemes. What does that mean? Demonic schemes here. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, in this work, uh, in this power of darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, stand firm, so forth, so that we can oppose the devil's schemes. Okay? Now, our problem is we can see flesh and blood. That person is a stumbling block to me. They hurt me. They l- try to lead me ast- astray. They're a problem in my life. There's a th- they're a thorn to me. I can see them. They're my perpetual enemy. But this says, no, flesh and blood is not your enemy. They may be tools, instruments of the devil. I don't doubt that at all. Satan, it says, entered into Judas, and Judas went out and betrayed Jesus. Just as the enemy can use us, so can God. We are, but, but, but again, we are not our own. We're made to be inhabited. God made us for his dwelling place. When we say no to God, we're not going to be then in charge. There's some other spirit that inhabits me and pushes me, influences me, prompts me in the wrong way. The devil's schemes. He said, we're, Paul told the Corinthians, he said, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices, his schemes, his plan. The word here for schemes is just methods. What's his M.O.? 
We're supposed to know that so we can recognize it. What basically, then, do we have to remember about the devil? Well, he hates God. He can't get to God. So he gets to God's crowning creation, which is us, made in his image and likeness. Knowing how dear, knowing how dear we are to God, Satan then can only attempt to hurt God by destroying us, his chief object of affection. And how does he do that? He does it through schemes that always involve cunning, deceit. He is, nobody's ever seen the devil. I mean, we haven't. We, we have this picture, you know, of red suit and barbed tail and horns and a pitchfork. The devil has never dressed up like that for anybody. Okay? He doesn't ever come to your front door knock on the door dressed in a red suit with a barbed tail, horns, and a pitchfork and tell you I'm here to do the dead level best I can to drag your soul into eternal hell. He doesn't do that. Ever. I could get in trouble here, but he shows up in your life as the most wonderful friend or maybe potential spouse, but they're going a different direction. He shows up with a maybe a scheme that's a little bit off, and I've got to compromise some of my principles that I know as a Christian, but look at the end. Listen. Sometimes it is, I can't, if I compromise a little bit on X, it will enable me to impress and get close to this person who doesn't know God, and I can win them to the Lord. It's missionary drinking, okay? Um, it's evangelistic compromise. If I can... If I can go be one of the whoever, you can win them to the Lord. Well, what's, a, what's bad about that? And we're duped. Remember this. The devil is called by God the deceiver who deceives the whole world. There's a reason God called him that. He's the deceiver. We live with deceit, really, all around us, all the time. Okay? Just think about, well, think about warfare. Have you ever heard, I'm, I, I won't go on this story too long, have you ever heard of what was called um, <clears throat> First USAG, Army Group, First U.S. Army Group Training in England? You ever heard of that? Or, as it's called in the vernacular, Patton's Ghost Army. 
It is the most fascinating story you'd ever read. In an effort to try to dupe Hitler into thinking that the Allies were not going to land at Normandy. They knew there'd have to be an invasion of Europe and it'd have to be from the sea. They set up all kinds of phony plans that they, quote, leaked through double agents to the Germans. One was invasion from the south of France. Another one was Greece. Another one was a couple places through the, what's called the Low Countries, the Netherlands, you know, Holland. Clear up Denmark and it was another one. What why do that? So Hitler would not know where to bulk up his main defense and make him think we're going to land here when we're really going to land over there and he's got all of his attention and his soldiers focused over here and he thought we were coming here but we're going there. The whole thing is deceit. Not bad deceit. God sows discord in the minds of people. How many, you know, God is a general. If you read the book of Joshua, how many times he told Joshua, the Philistines came at them, and the Canaanites, and all kinds of different people attacking them. One time he says, go out straight against them. I'll help you. The next time, Joshua prayed. The enemy came in the same place, and he said, should we go out face to face? And God said, no, circle around behind the mulberry trees and hit them in the back. That's God. God told Joshua more than one, set an ambush here and nail them. Okay? We live with that all the time. We're going to, I guess, sometime today, some of you will watch football. Okay? How, are the, how is it that the Packers will for sure beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? By deceit. We're going to run, but instead we pass. We're going to throw short, but we're going to really go long. What does a runner do? He's got the ball. He's running at the last tackler between him and the goal line. What does he do? He says, I'm going to run that way. No. He deceives the defender. It's nothing but massive, ongoing, continuous efforts to try to fool someone into thinking I'm doing this, but I'm really doing that. That's all the devil does. He uses what seems to be good, but it always has a sting to it. It involves somewhere disobeying God, going back on a commitment, some kind of vow we said, Lord, I'm never going to go back. I'd keep me from going back into what I used to be in. And then there's this situation that, well, it won't really harm you to go ahead and do this again, go back into this relationship or whatever it might be. 
There are hundreds of ways that the devil does his best to deceive us, even good Christians. Deceive us with what we can see, but get us with what we can't see. He's famous for telling us this little deviation from God's word won't harm you. It's okay. Then go ahead and do it and see what he tells you. I've dealt with I don't know how many dear souls who have fallen in some way and disappointed God and grieved their own hearts and the same voice that told them doing this won't hurt you that's ah, okay God's it's minor then they'll sit in my office and weep and think I God will never forgive me he they're they're beaten up so much for what they did by the same person who told them it wouldn't hurt them this is all our foe does. Lie, 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 lie. Deceive. He dresses up that which is evil in attractive dress. And we'll take it. He takes what is good and right and true, which is obeying God. Obey God. At all costs. It may cost you friendships. It may cost money. It may cost whatever. Obey God. But he dresses that up as ruining my life. I'll lose this. I won't get that. Oh, it's bad. You honor God. He'll wreck every bit of fun you've got. That's all he is. He's a, the great curmudgeon in the sky who loves to find out what you want to do and deny it. What your wishes and hopes are, stop it. That's the kind of God He paints. It's all deceit. It's all a lie. Quickly, in the Old Testament, God told there's a case I think of often. God told the Israelites over, 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 over. When they got out of Egypt, went through the wilderness, came to the promised land, crossed over the Jordan River, he said, whatever you do, listen to me. Whatever you do, he said, don't, let your, don't, don't have your sons marry the heathens, the, the Gentiles, the nations that you're going to push out of the land. Don't let your sons marry their daughters. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Don't make any agreements with them. Don't make a peace treaty with them. Don't promise you get rid of them. You push them out. They knew that. If someone had come to them and said straight out, we are here to deceive you, and we want to make deals with you, we want to make peace with you, we want to intermarry with you, Joshua, a man of God, would never have done that. No, there's no way he would have done that. But a great group of people who had great walled cities and a large army who were major occupiers of part of the land of Canaan, the Gibeonites, and they realized they're going to obliterate us, take away our cities, take away our property. 
we've got to figure, we can't fight them. We see they've wiped out everybody that's fought against them. We'll have to trick them. And so they just simply relied, and here, what I'm after here, they relied on the fact that Joshua and the leaders of Israel were people, were humans, who look at what we can see. And so they got ancient clothes, old shoes, their provisions, moldy bread, water, jugs which were leather, full of holes, and they came dressed like this, carrying old, dry, moldy bread, came to Joshua. They were cunning, not only in what they looked like, but they also were cunning in their information. They said, we heard how you crossed the Red Sea. We heard how you crossed the Jordan River. They didn't mention anything recent, like Jericho and other battles that had been spectacularly won. They intentionally acted as if they were unaware of recent events because that wouldn't fit in their story. Joshua said, our God told us not to make deals with anybody. Oh, we're, we're not from here. We're from a land that, which they didn't name, but they said, oh, it's, it's many, many months' journey. In fact, they opened up their sacks. Look at this moldy, dry, broken up, crumbly bread. Look, look at our shoes. We, they were brand new. This was warm out of our ovens when we left. And now look at it. It's See these clothes? Boy, the long journey. They're worn out, frayed, torn, patched. Oh yeah, we came from a far away country. And they were very careful to only say the victories that they knew the Israelites had won. We've heard you did this. But they left a long gap of recent stuff that they knew because they were living right there. And so it says, Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they did two things. It says, when they saw the old clothes, the shot shoes, the moldy bread, it says they believed them and then there's and made and made a contract with made a peace treaty with them we won't ever hurt you we won't we'll let you keep your land it doesn't matter cuz you're you're a long ways away so it's no problem then there's one sentence but Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Now, were they hellions backslidden, going to hell, threw God off, said from here on, we're not serving God? No, no. Joshua is a member of the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. But he relied on this, and this, and that, and he didn't ask God. And God knew something that none of them knew. He'd have told them if they would have asked him. See how simple that is? 
they made this peace treaty. And let's say it was on a Monday. Wednesday, they found out the way they counted days, sundown to sunup. Wednesday, they found out they were great walled cities that the Gibeonites lived in, and they, were, they had great armies, and they were among the chief strong people of Canaan. Let me just say this to you, then I'll, then I'll hurry up. That mistake... That mistake was still affecting Israel. You could say weeks and weeks after that. Boy, I tell you, 400 years later, the Israelites were still dealing with the Gibeonites as a thorn in their side and a, a causes of trouble. All because... Good people in the struggle, in the wrestle, wrestling, in the spiritual warfare took their eyes just in one case off of God and His Word and His truth and relied on their own judgment, their own evaluation. Oh, I think it's okay. Don't do that. And I don't mean you have to stand in the aisle at Smith's, where the arrow's going the wrong way, and pray over whether you should buy Colgate, which is on sale, or Pepsodent. I just don't know. I've got to ask God. I'm not talking about foolishness like that. But decisions we make, moves we make, don't rely on eyes, ears, my brain, because we're against a foe who is nothing but a deceiver and seeks to lead me off the path. So we have demonic schemes that we're against, but finally, we have a divine supply. It says here, I know, it looks like we're, it says you take up the arm armor of God. You strengthen yourselves in the Lord. But the words here in the original language are passive, which means allow God to do it. Allow God. Be strong in the Lord. The first it says, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. That word is passive. means it doesn't, you don't say, oh, i got to work out. It doesn't mean that. i got to get power from God. And it is then let God empower me by His grace, by petitioning Him, asking for it, recognizing, Lord, I can't do a thing without You. Without me, You can do nothing, Jesus said. So Jesus, give me grace. Give me strength. Help me stand in the battle. It's not, I'm doing it by my arm. Not at all. Then, even when you get to some of these armaments, they are passive, meaning God has to give this to you. Now look at the supply that He's given us. Take up the full armor of God, which, by the way, tells us I can't afford to have one piece of armor missing. Take up the full armor so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. 
and stand firm. And then here's, here's our armament. 14. Gird your loins with truth. It's a, it's a big leather belt that held your weapons and your armor was link, uh, linked to it. And so what keeps me from being deceived? Truth. Truth. What's the source of truth? God's Word and His Spirit whispering to my heart. He is faithful. The truth sets me free. The truth, the truth, the truth. We have to stick to truth, period. If I end up losing relationships, even with family, with friends, I have to stick to the truth, period. The truth is what holds everything together. Truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and about truth, let me say this. Truth is not only up here from knowing the Scripture, it's in here from listening to the Holy Spirit, but it's also, it's a new nature in my heart. David said in Psalm 51, the prayer he prayed for restoration after falling and committing dreadful sin against God through Bathsheba and all that mess, and praying for God to restore his heart, he said, Lord, you desire truth in the secret part. It's truth that's in here, meaning a true and honest heart that faces the truth. Doesn't shrink from it, doesn't try to rationalize it, doesn't try to explain it away, doesn't try to excuse it, Here's the truth. And David said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and my sin's always right in front of my face. That's truth. In here and in here, that's what saves me from deceit. Breastplate of righteousness is a clean heart. Righteous heart covers my main organs. Then your feet clothed with boots the Romans would wear and the Greeks also. They would either have a very thick leather kind of boot or even brass as far as portions of it. Your shins covered. Heavy. But it would protect you and they would have a thick sole with nails driven through it. So that we think that we came up with cleats maybe a hundred years ago because we're smart. They knew about cleats. And that's what they would use so they could stand steady and fight and climb and so forth. I've got to have my feet walking in God's paths. Or you lose your feet, you're done. I don't care how strong your upper body, don't care what kind of your weapons. I can't stand on my feet. I can't stand. Then, shield of faith which is the size of a door, and it was curved and made very uh, glossy, shiny, um, hard surface so that literal fiery darts would glance off of it. Couldn't stick in it. And what is a shield? It's a shield of faith. The devil shoots fiery darts of doubt at us all the time. Accuses God, accuses us, accuses others all the time. 
How do I keep those from sticking? If they stick, I can be in trouble. How do I keep them bouncing off? Fate. The, there's three things we're to do. We're, we're, two we're not to do. We don't fight in the flesh. We don't fight in the flesh. There's nothing physically I can do in these kinds of warfare, spiritual warfare. Two, we can't fight in the what I call the fantastic, which is the rebuking Satan and, you know, all this stuff. Walking around the block and chasing all the demons out of all the houses. I'm not talking about any of that. What's the meanest thing I can do to the devil? Rebuke him? Walk, you know, get rid. I had a person show up in this town at the church and say, God sent me here to chase demons out of the sanctuary and pointed up into a corner where there, there, there was a demon there. She told me, I, you know, there's a demon up in that corner. I thought, no, it's probably in the office. <laughs> anyway, that's nuts. Totally nuts. We, we didn't have the exorcism. We, I got rid of it. Anyway, the third thing, we fight in the faith. So what's the meanest cut in half, Gatling gun, 50 caliber machine gun meanness I can do to the devil? A quiet, steady, I believe God. I trust his word. He will do what he said. He'll never fail for eternity. I trust him. That is the meanest thing I can do to the devil. He doesn't need to be rebuked. And I trust God. I trust God. I don't know what was going on. I stood by the side of my dad who had preached for 50 years, walked with God. No question in anybody's mind that knew him whether he was all out for God or not. As he was on his deathbed, stood there with one of my sisters um, as he breathed his last. I don't know. I used to hear him say, he'd say the devil snapping at your heels when you come into the world and he'll be snapping when you leave. He hadn't said anything for hours. I don't know what was going on in his mind and maybe even some you know, pressure as he went down through the valley of death. But he just twice said, didn't open his eyes, but he said forcefully, I trust God. I trust God. That's ultimately, that's our weapon. I believe the word of God. I have the sword. I have the shield. I trust God. So we need to identify our enemy. And we need to also then use the suitable weapons against him. 
since we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, flesh and blood weapons don't work. I come at him and I win the victory and I stand firm by faith. Let's bow our heads. Dan, if you dismiss us with prayer and may we go and keep these words from God's mouth guiding us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the mighty and matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. And this is a very timely message in our, not just our own town, but in our country and around the world. We need to know who our enemy is, Lord. And our enemy is not flesh and blood, as we've learned this morning. It's the devil. Which, as I sat and listened to this this morning, Lord, I was reminded just how desperately I need you. Because there is no way that I stand in this battle and survive this battle on this side of heaven on my own. So if there's anyone in this room this morning, Lord, that does not know you, I want this message to rest on them and scare them. That they are staring off into the abyss of hell without you. And they are being led there by a supernatural foe, snickering the whole way. Lord, we need you. We need a salvation. We need to be saved by the blood of Jesus and dwell of your Holy Spirit. And by your grace, we live out this life that you've called us to in this battle. And we need to remember, Lord, that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Because of what our Lord and Savior has done on the cross, in the grave, and then raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, we have victory. But in the meantime, there is a battle that rages, Lord, for our soul. So I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we know you, that we love you, that we walk with you, but more than that, as we learned at the end of this message today, Lord, that you laid on our pastor's heart, and you laid it on Pastor Dan's heart for us to hear. We need to trust you. And as his dad echoed on his deathbed, when we feel the enemy come and we are under attack, simply put, I trust God. Help us to be a congregation that does just that as we leave this room today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.